Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Waz, aka Wazdy Lambray. Joined as always by my comrade. Nando Vila, and for the first time ever, a very special guest indeed. Technically, our first guest, even though our first guest ever was Nando, who then became permanently part of the show. Our real first guest. It was an audition. I didn't know about it. It was just an audition. It was was an audition that we didn't tell him about. (laughs) Yeah. We have, from TYT, the great, the incomparable... Anna Kasparian. What's going on, Anna? Hey, what's up, guys? It's so good to be here. I'm really happy I'm doing this show. Of course. On today's show, we're going to get into the the situation with the stimulus package. Is it coming? Is it going? Trump is saying he's not basically was like, I'm not going to (laughs) negotiate with terrorists. Um, And and basically, you know, he's threatening people with with like, you vote for me, you'll actually get something, Uh, which I don't think is very savvy on his part. But whatever, that's neither here nor there. But first, you know, we had to we had to get into the conflict out in between Armenia, Azerbaijan and Turkey. those of you who listen to this show know that's a situation is very near and dear to me because my significant other is of Armenian descent. And, um, you know, a lot of people are now in my life who are Armenian people and they're very, they're hurting by this from this, uh, sort of conflict. And we, you know, we wanted to me and Nando wanted to get somebody who we knew would knew what the hell they were talking about 
on not just the conflict as it stands, but the history of the conflict and how things got to be how they are. And so, Anna, um, where do you think is the proper place to start for people to conceptualize what's happening um, between these three countries? Well, I think one of the major disagreements uh, that we're hearing about between uh, ethnic Armenians living in Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, the Azerbaijani government is, you know, this notion that Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an autonomous region, it is governed by ethnic Armenians, it is not in any way governed by uh, the Azeris, um, you know, that land internationally is recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but it's not enough to just simply say that and accept it because the history is actually a lot more complicated than that. And um, when you really look into um, history before Christ, I mean, like going back literally centuries, uh, you will see. Wow. We going yeah. back before, before the, the Lord. Lord. And, and by the way, the Lord is actually an important um, element to this story because Armenians um, have always been the uh, minority, the religious minority in that region, and as a result, uh, dealt with a great deal of persecution under the Ottoman Empire, later uh, were Mm. were murdered uh, through the Armenian genocide. 1.5 million Armenians were murdered simply because of who they are and what they believe. Um, and then once you have this uh, Russian revolution and then Soviet rule, things get even further complicated because ethnic Armenians who have been living in this region um, for literally centuries are essentially uh, dealing with being colonized, essentially, and also uh, being used as... Uh, a chip in in this game of leverage between Russia, the Soviets particularly, and Turkey. So I'm actually going to go way back, and mm -hmm. it's it's a simplified version. Yes, I, yeah, I mean, it's a simplified to. version of history. But I, I highly recommend that everyone um, not rely on the superficial way this is reported about um, in the United States, if it's ever reported about. And even in Europe with the BBC and um, Al Jazeera, which is uh, owned by Qatar, it's it's a very superficial coverage. Um, and a lot of it is influenced mm. by an incredibly powerful propaganda machine uh, with the Turkish government and the Azerbaijani government. With that said, let's go back in time. Let's take a look at what happened in um, fourth century BC. If you go back and look at what historians have written, about this region. Armenians have actually been living in that region since 4th century BC. In fact, a uh, long time ago. And Nagorno-Karabakh, um, which Armenians refer to as Artsakh, was actually one of the Armenian provinces under the uh, Kingdom of Armenia. So uh, that happened around um, 180 BC. Uh, there were 15 provinces of Armenia. Artsakh, which is now not known as Nagorno-Karabakh, became uh, one of the uh, provinces. Now, you can tell how long Armenians have lived in that area, ethnic Armenians have lived in that area, because there are um, incredibly old churches, and the first ever Armenian school was built in Nagorno-Karabakh in the fifth century. So I'm giving you this background history to just wow. really drive home the point that ethnic Armenians have always lived there, their culture is there. Uh, the architecture and the uh, cultural influence of ethnic Armenians remains there. And most importantly, the majority of people living there today 
are Armenians. They are ethnic Armenians, and they have been fighting aggressively in order to join Armenia as a country. Now, when you look at a map of Nagorno-Karabakh, um, it is it is within Azerbaijani territory, which does make things complicated. But how did that come to be? Can you tell the people who drew yeah. that map? Yes, exactly. Sorry to cut you off. How did okay, that so come to be? Okay, so this is where me? things um, get a little sketchy, and it's important to understand how the history works. So um, during Soviet rule, it didn't really matter <laughs> who that territory belonged to because both Azerbaijan and Armenia are under Soviet rule. Nagorno-Karabakh is under Soviet rule. Um, that's They're governed by the Soviets, period. But when the fall of the Soviet era happens, that's when things get complicated. Now, in um, the 1920s, you have a situation in which Joseph Stalin decides that he wants to influence Turkey, possibly convince Turkey to uh, join uh, along with uh, this trend of communism. And so uh, in an effort to appeal mm. to Turkey, he hands over Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan, which, by the way, wasn't even a country. Az Azerbaijanis are ethnic Turks, okay? Uh, Azerbaijan was not a country <laughs> until about 1918, uh, when, with the help of the Turkish government, uh, they invaded Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. They took over. And uh, by the way, they slaughtered 30,000 ethnic Armenians in the process of doing that. They love to make themselves out to be the victims, but they never, ever cite the atrocities that they committed uh, to the Armenians, the ethnic Armenians living there. And so um, Azerbaijan, uh, you know, becomes a country in uh, the early 1900s. Uh, Armenia had already been a country. Our ethnic Armenians had already been living in that region. The Armenian genocide happened in 1915. And so you got to keep in mind when you're dealing with a, a, an ethnic minority, a religious minority that has been slaughtered to the tunes of millions of people, they're going to be incredibly protective of their land and their territory, and they're going to do what it takes to defend themselves. And that's what we're dealing with today. So the Soviet Union collapses. And after that happens, the uh, conflict between ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijanis um, really starts to heat up. And ever since then, we've been having these sporadic wars break out and we currently have a war right now um, with both sides um, mm. attacking one another. But I want to be clear that the Azerbaijanis, despite what they say today, were absolutely the ones who struck first because the current uh, president of Azerbaijan, um, Ilham Aliyev, uh, wants to essentially uh, appeal to the nationalist base in his country. There has been an economic collapse as a result mm. of oil prices collapsing in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan historically wow. has been an oil-rich country. And so in an effort to appeal to the nationalist uh, people in Azerbaijan, uh, he's now shifting his focus away from economic issues and more toward national issues, primarily pushing ethnic Armenians right. out of Nagorno-Karabakh. That's what's happening today. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, what's important to remember is that since the population of Nagorno-Karabakh is overwhelmingly Armenian, they decided to um, hold a, a vote, a petition, essentially, uh, which they sent to Moscow mm -hmm. saying that they want to become part of Armenia. 
The Azerbaijani government was not happy about that. And so uh, they begin to attack. Armenia miraculously defends itself, becomes an autonomous region that is governed by Armenians. Um, it is funded by Armenia. And the Azerbaijani government, if you look at uh, how they fund uh, areas, uh, you know, within their so-called territory, uh, they, you know, don't really fund this area. They don't care about this area. Um, and just, you know, things just flare up here and there. But for the most part, it is an autonomous region. Um, so the, the issue that I have is, Oh, the international community, based on what Joseph Stalin did uh, in the 1920s, recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as uh, Azerbaijani land. No, I'm sorry, not buying it. Uh, the right. Soviets, you know, obviously the Soviet Union collapsed. You have a group of people who have uh, defended themselves and their land. OK, and then at the same time, I don't really care what the international community has to say about that region, especially when you only have about 22 countries in the world acknowledging that the Armenian genocide happened. Um, and so I mentioned that because mm. uh, they have really no leg to stand on or no credibility on this very issue. I think that the people who live in that region have the right to self-determination. The majority of them are Armenian. They've been governed by Armenians. I think they deserve to make a decision about who owns that land, who lives in that land, and who governs that land, period. That's where I'm coming from. <laughs> and so I, I just I wanted to ahead, uh, zoom out and maybe like um, maybe like paint a, a very sim simple, maybe simplistic picture of, of what the conflict is today, just so that people, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the vast majority of people, um, and no, this is not like a, to disrespect anyone, but this is not like a, a region of the world that is very well covered or anything like that. Um, so they, they probably just don't even know what happened. They just hear that there's something going on. But I think basically it, what's going on is that there's there's three countries kind of in a line, right? There's Azerbaijan to the east, there's Armenia to, to the middle, like right in between, and then there's Turkey um, to the west, right? And, and so Armenia is kind of sandwiched between Turkey and Azerbaijan. And then on, 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 the, on the border uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, there's this region called Nagorno-Karabakh, um, which is this very mountainous region, kind of very unruly in, in that sense, because like, you know, we, we assume that like national boundaries are just like this easy thing to to kind of, they're just like a thing on the line on a map, <laughs> to establish. Um, but you really have to like assert state control. It's kind of like how in parts of northern Mexico, like the Mexican state can't, can't control um, these like kind of remote mountainous regions that are controlled by the cartels, right? Like it's, and I'm not right. comparing obviously, but it's like, it's not easy to, to like assert, you know, a, a country's authority over certain regions. And there's this area called Nagorno-Karabakh. vast majority of people living there are Armenia, are Armenian. It's maybe in some extremely limited technical term, uh, part of Azerbaijan, but in all, for all intents and purposes, it's, um, like it basically operates as its own independent country. Um, and about right. 10 days ago, the Azerbaijani government basically started bombing. That's, is that, right. is that correct? That is <laughs> so correct. People can understand. And yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sorry. I, I like jumped into history yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah, no. right away, but yeah, that is what's happening today no, because, uh, again, um, the Aliyev, who's the president of Azerbaijan has decided to, um, essentially appease the nationalistic, um, you know, element of the country by taking over Nagorno-Karabakh. Right. Yeah. And, and by the way, in terms of the international, 
perspective and what's um, very likely to happen if there isn't some sort of negotiation and a ceasefire soon. You have all these international players who play a role. And what I'm worried about is Turkey has historically been, um, I mean, murderous, incredibly cruel to Armenians. Obviously, they're backing Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan denies that. But I mean, you have literal verbatim quotes from Erdogan of Turkey saying, yo, I got your back, Azerbaijan. Don't worry, we're going to take that land back. How are you going to deny that Turkey's yeah. involved well, when Turkey is releasing statements like that? Azerbaijan also, will argue that they're not the ones who attacked uh, Nagorno-Karabakh first uh, in the more recent war that we're experiencing right now. And I find that incredibly shocking because what incentive do the ethnic Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh have to randomly provoke Azerbaijan? It just yeah. makes no sense. It's Azerbaijan that has clearly stated that they want ethnic Armenians to leave that land. It's not simply, oh, we want to govern that land. Azerbaijan wants to take Armenians off of that land, their homeland. And so it's just another continuation of the ethnic cleansing that Armenians dealt with um, in 1915 at the hands of uh, the Turkish government. And it's disgusting. Yeah. And, and it's important to note that Turkey is an important player in this, for the mainly because they're a, they're a NATO power. I mean, they're in NATO, which yes. is the sort of Western military alliance. Like, you know, NATO is <laughs> a military alliance that was designed to sort of confront the, the Soviet Union, but but when the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO continued, um, and so the United States is in it. All of the countries of Western Europe are in it. And Turkey is in it. So, like, the United States is in a military alliance, like a very, the most famous military alliance in the world, probably, um, with Turkey. So, Turkey is, is a very powerful player. And and I think, Anna, maybe it's worth talking about um, the sort of importance of the region, because I think people are like, Armenia, Azerbaijan, you know, I've never, I barely even heard of these countries. It's like, maybe, like, I saw it in, in a Borat movie or something. But, you know, like, this or is they, an incredible. Watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Exactly, yeah. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> but like, uh, this is an incredibly important region for, like, I mean, it's it's basically at the crossroads of Western Europe and Asia, um, and 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 provides like, I mean, obviously there's like oil interests and natural yeah. resource interests, which is always at the end of the day, at the heart of all of this shit. <laughs> so maybe explain yeah. a little bit about, about the importance of like what, what they call like the South Caucasus. Yeah. So, um, such a great question. And there are two main things I want to bring up. One of them is historical. The other is what's currently happening. So going back to, uh, the decision that Stalin made, um, to essentially appease Turkey and hopefully get Turkey on the Soviet side. Um, you know, there was, Russia was also concerned about its financial interests, because as we know, Russia is a big oil producer, and uh, Russia wants to have control over the market, um, especially when it comes to the overproduction uh, of oil and fossil fuels. And so Azerbaijan um, is also an oil-producing country, an oil-rich country. And essentially what Russia did was create a situation in which, uh, you know, th these are the early days, remember, uh, when oil transportation is a little different, Russia wanted to ensure that Azerbaijan couldn't just simply um, uh, export oil without Russia being involved, because they wanted mm -hmm. to be able to turn off that spigot, okay? So mm -hmm. the way that they divided and conquered was very much based on, yes, um, 
political, their political agenda, but also their economic and financial interests as well. So that's what happened um, during the Stalin days. However, moving forward to today, um, Azerbaijan is uh, currently working to supply oil to European countries, mm -hmm. and they're able to do that even without taking over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but again, I think that what's happening today, what we're seeing with Aliyev and his uh, provocations and, and, and cruelty toward ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh today aren't so much uh, influenced by his uh, desire to export fuel, uh, or I should say oil. Um, he's been able to do that. It's more about appealing to the people of Azerbaijan as his economic system is failing them, right. as oil prices are collapsing, as people are unable to get the social programs that he had promised them, he's unable to fund them because of the reliance on oil exports. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, he's just like Trump in that he's immediately it's turning tale to- tale as old as time, right? You yes. start a little yeah, war, that's, that, that's stir, up some, <laughs> stir up some, uh, you know, nationalist sentiments and unite Whenever the people. Whenever there's an economic collapse, you know, exactly. it's like these minorities are ruining your lives. It's totally. not that, totally. you know, the oil markets no, are, yeah. you know, crushing our, our way of, you know, getting money into this country. It's that those minorities are the ones who are ruining everything. They love yeah. Jesus, goddamn. And, yeah. What and, the and hell? And the Stalin move to sort of... Uh, <laughs> slice off this chunk of land, you know, con that was populated by Armenians and, and handed to Like, it's also a tale as old as time. Any empire, um, yeah. they, it was, this was like the, the classic case of the British empire that that's why so many conflicts yep. today, so many eth ethnic and nationalist conflicts today, uh, are, you can draw a direct line to, uh, British boundaries in which they specifically divided ethnicities to, to make them to make them weaker, right? If you if unite, that's why Iran is so dangerous um, for for the West because it is ethnically kind of coherent, um, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. other countries in the Middle East are are all ethnically divided, and that was de by design uh, from the British Empire. Stalin just took a page right out of it and did this same exact thing. I mean, that was a way for him to sort of tr stamp down on sort of a coherent nationalist sentiment threatening the power of the Soviet Union. You know, it's crazy. What have we heard from? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I just Anna. wanted to, one quick comment about that. Um, when you take a look at how it all went down with Stalin, um, you know, the Bolsheviks had like they had promised the land to Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, which, again, historically was Artsakh. And that's why you hear Armenians refer to it as Artsakh. And then literally a day later, because of these geopolitical considerations, uh, the opposite decision was made. Um, so that's important to keep in mind because you're absolutely right, Nando. Um, this wasn't about doing what's right. Uh, this divide and conquer strategy, very much based on um, the political and financial interests of the Soviets, um, you know, was just implemented for their gain. It wasn't in any way uh, meant to do the right thing. And, and yeah. that's, that's how international relations works. You know, yeah. I remember being, I remember being in uh, grad school for poli sci and like, you know, liberalism. I'm just like, what, what, what? <laughs> no, we lit, this is, let's, <laughs> let's focus on the realist scholars because they're right. And that's what we've yeah. seen over and over again in history. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no. And I wanted to bring it back to America and the West because, you know, um, a lot of people will be listening to this and say, okay, well, so what is our role in this? Um, I know 
for the last three and a half years, uh, our president and his regime have said very nice things about Erdogan in Turkey. That's his boy. That's his, you know, sort of um, psychopath, you know, spirit animal, <laughs> right? Like he he loves Erdogan. Um, what have the what has the White House said so far during this most recent conflict? Well, uh, Trump was asked about it during a press conference, and his only reaction was, uh, we're going to look at it very strongly. Yeah. Have, uh, <laughs> He's have never heard of Azerbaijan or Armenia in his no. goddamn life. Yeah. No, he hasn't. But he has. He has, in fact. Well, I mean, Azerbaijan, I'm not sure. Uh, and Turkey, yeah. he's certainly heard of Turkey. You're, you're no, right, love, Watts, yeah, that Turkey. he loves Erdogan. I love it on Thanksgiving. Um, I love it in the White House. Yeah. I pardon in Turkey every year <laughs> on Thanksgiving. And, uh, and, and and down with the ethnic Armenians and down with the PKK, the Kurdish party. They're terrorists. Uh, yeah. It's so frustrating. I, God, I have so much to say about the Trump angle because there's a lot to get into. But first, yeah. let me just note that um, – you know, at least as far as Los Angeles is concerned, the majority of the Armenian diaspora here um, overwhelmingly supports Donald Trump. And I would just really? ask them, uh, yes, yes, I would, and I would just ask Big, them bigly. to please, yeah. um, I'm begging you, take a good hard look at his actions toward Armenia, his friendship with Erdogan. Um, for instance, Congress is actually pretty close to uh, passing a resolution that would finally, finally acknowledge the Armenian genocide. The person who got in the way and told uh, Republican senators to avoid voting in favor of that was Donald Trump. And mm. uh, that's something that I wish <laughs> the Armenian diaspora in Los Angeles was aware of. Um, second thing I wanted to mention was, look, if you look at how easily Erdogan influences Trump's decisions, that's one other cause of concern. I mean, uh, everything's kind of <laughs> blending together during the Trump administration. But remember, yeah. Trump yeah. had a call with Erdogan one weekend. And literally a day or two later, he withdrew American troops from um, northeast Syria, Syria essentially yeah. paving, yeah, paving the way for Erdogan and, you know, the Turkish military to invade and slaughter our Kurdish allies in that region. Mm -hmm. I bring that up because it mm -hmm. is related to whatever decision, if there's ever a decision, uh, Donald Trump makes. And, and I mean, because obviously this, the Syria angle is important because, I mean, that's obviously the nightmare scenario is like, you know, Syrian civil war. I mean, who gives a shit, right? I mean, not, not really who gives a shit, but what the reason why it became so nasty was it beca essentially became a proxy war um, between yep. the United States, Russia, the other great powers who are kind of fighting it out through this conflict in Syria. And like you can imagine a similar thing happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, where it's like, yes, I mean, it's bad enough that people in that region are, are fighting with uh, with each other. But the real nightmare is if, like, the great powers come in, supply weapons, troops, all that stuff, it just escalates the violence to to a degree that, that you know, like, I mean, it goes from, like, there's a, I think there's been a few hundred deaths uh, now, but you can, see, you know, like, if once that happens, the level of violence yeah. goes up to you know, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people. So, I mean, that, that's, that's always the delicate game in, in this situation. So do you see like a, a potential danger of this becoming a proxy war between say like the United States and, and Russia or Turkey and yeah. Russia or whatever? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the players that you have involved so far um, include 
Russia, which um, historically speaking has backed Armenians. However, um, in this case, uh, they do seem to be playing both sides a little bit, mostly because of financial interests. Right. Um, and those financial interests have to do with weapon sales. So they are selling weapons to Armenia at a highly discounted rate um, or price. When it comes to the Azerbaijani government, they're selling weapons um, at a markup, but it doesn't matter. They're selling weapons to both sides. And that's what terrifies me because <laughs> in terms of defending itself, Armenia has historically relied on Russia. And if they can't rely on Russia today, I don't know what that means if this does um, accelerate and expand into a full-blown proxy war. Uh, Iran, um, you would think, surprisingly, uh, is backing Armenia, but it's actually not that surprising when you consider the history of Azerbaijan and how they tried to take over some of Iran's territory, because that's mm. how they roll. Um, I mean, just <laughs> just take a look at what Turk Turkic tribes have done in that region, um, not just to Armenia, um, not just the attempt with Iran, but also with Greece and, you know, other countries that have been, um, you know, have dealt with uh, Turkish aggression. Uh, but then you also have um, France, which... Macron has made some pretty uh, strong statements against Erdogan because he can see how Erdogan is very much influencing what's going on right now. Um, it's unclear if France is going to help the ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh in any uh, sub substantive way, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of players involved. What Donald Trump has essentially done, though, is he's created this vacuum because mm. there is a group known as the Minsk Group um, that includes France, the United States, Turkey. They're the ones who have been in, um, essentially negotiating ceasefires uh, in the region. But Trump has kind of like created this vacuum in that he doesn't really care about anything or anyone other than himself. So um, <laughs> him isolating that group allows for Erdogan to exert more influence, not just with that group, but more importantly, in that region. And you have these two superpowers, Turkey and Russia, which historically have go gone at it, um, now both trying to exert their influence um, throughout the world. And so the only real hope that I think we have uh, for the ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh is that Russia will finally intervene and negotiate another ceasefire because they don't want Erdogan in Turkey to expand uh, its influence over the region. I'm already seeing the Rachel Maddow segment, like strongly supporting Azerbaijan <laughs> and its cause for Nagorno-Karabakh to thumb her nose at Vladimir Putin. Um, <laughs> why are so many I mean, Armenians in LA? Um, well, a lot of them had to leave Armenia um, following the genocide. Um, many did. I mean, it's not just LA, although LA does have the largest Armenian population. I think yeah. it's like something around 8 million, um, which is- Bananas, wow. I know. It's Why huge. so many? Wait, there's eight million Don't Armenian people. Don't quote me on in that. LA? Don't quote me on that. Right. I think I think I have to double check that number. But there are definitely Sheesh. more Armenians in Los Angeles than Armenians in Armenia. Then there are people in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, wow. they, they mostly come after the Soviet Union collapsed. Um like like in the in the early nineties or like what when was the I, I don't I don't I don't really know the history of Armenia in LA. It's just like why do they come all the way here and not yeah, closer I, like New I would York. have your expertise on that that slice of Armenian history, but I don't because I know that my family, both my mom and my dad, who met here in Los Angeles, uh, they immigrated to the United States in the late seventies. Mm. Um, so, and I know that it was it was mostly for economic reasons. Um, 
you know, when my parents talk about Armenia under Soviet rule, they, they give incredibly like mixed reactions because yeah. on one hand they're like, we were taking, like, we were taking care of, you know, we didn't have to worry about dying from being sick. Like they had. That's great always the thing with the Soviet union. It's totally. like, they it's kind like, of more or less took care of their people. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't like great or anything like that, but, um, yeah. they kind of more or less took care of their people. And the, the thing like, that came afterwards was a total social collapse. Um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you saw that social collapse in Azerbaijan and in Armenia, um, and other, you know, former Soviet countries. Uh, but you know, if you talk to my mom, my dad specifically about systems of government, what he likes, what he doesn't like, um, you know, some days he'll be like, oh, we came to America and look what I was able to build for myself. American dream capitalism <laughs> is great, but he was a big fan of Trotsky. So that, I guess, take that. Wow. For <laughs> and um a lot of a lot of armenians did have to emigrate from armenia to other middle eastern countries like iraq iran a lot of them had to get the hell up out of there during the revolution a lot of armenians came from iran to la during that time lebanon um is was another big hub for Syria. armenians and people emigrated from there um they're, they're, they're all over the place yeah. nando it's it's crazy yeah. when you really think about just my girl's family alone she like her parents are from Iraq. Um, she has she has in laws that are from Iran. She yeah. has other in laws that are from Lebanon. Like just one of these people, the people that she's caught in the crossfire. Alone. You know, yeah, one of the many exactly. like kind of like the Kurds. You know, you're just kind of caught yeah. in the middle. Um, so Anna, um, people are want to gonna want to know what they can do. Who's obviously they should be watching TYT yeah. any fucking way. That goes without saying. But you know Anna's gonna be all over this. Like who can? What kind of causes can they give to? Um, who should they be paying attention to throughout this entire conflict before we get you up out of here? Well, um, Armenians in that region um, are now seeing their homes completely destroyed, the villages they live in completely destroyed. So one of the best things that you can do is to help them. Um, there's a humanitarian effort right now funded through Armenia Fund. Um, so please look into Armenia Fund. Donate what you can. It really does help. Um, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh have made clear that they need those resources. So please help them out. Again, it's this tiny minority um, that's been surrounded by uh, its enemies, um, and they've been defending yeah. themselves. It's a turkey sandwich, like yep. the way Nando just explained it. It's turkey over here and turkey adjacent I over love here. The turkey exactly. sandwich with extra gravy, very, <laughs> very good cranberry exactly. sauce. <laughs> All right, so yeah, you heard it here first, guys. Um, make sure you guys can contribute to Armenia Fund. Make sure you're checking out Anna Kasparian on TYT because as you've heard and seen today, she's yes. excellent. She's one Fierce. of the best people in the game, man. Like if if she wanted to sell out and be on CNN, yeah, she could have took over the world already, y'all. She would have been better, better than y'all. Aaron fucking Burnett. Come on. Uh, you know? I mean, are you kidding me? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you again for coming on, Anna. You're the best. Thank you. Love you guys. Have a great show. Man, once again, want to say thank you to Anna Kasparian for coming on. That was probably one of my favorite segments of the year. Uh, she just laid out the facts so clearly and eloquently. Mm. Um, 
just amazing. Anyway, so now we move on to the stimulus. I think it was yesterday, the stimulus that just refuses to happen. Yeah. I think it was yesterday that Trump tweeted <laughs> about his negotiations with the Democrats and that they want too much money yeah. and that $1.6 trillion was was what we were giving. And I told Mitch, we're not going to do this until after I get elected, which obviously is Trump being like, you want the money? Vote for me. Instead of just giving people the money and gloating and basking in it, which would I think would actually work, um, he's doing the opposite of, yeah, I, I haven't done shit for... When, when did they pass the first one, Nanda? Wasn't that like April? Yeah. yeah. It's now October. That's six yeah. months. That's half yeah. a year. That's three quarters the way to a baby, y'all. Like, I mean, what the hell? Um, after not having done anything for no particular reason for six months, he wants people to believe that once he's reelected, he's going to take care of everybody. Papa's going to take care of you. So, yeah. Nando, bring people up to speed as to sort of the minutiae of yeah. what's happening right now. So the stimulus bill, just to give a very kind of broad overview of what it what it really means is 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 basically an injection of money from the federal government into the economy um, basically helping people survive the pandemic with cash right like do you remember uh, it was like in beginning of April and end of March where they passed the the $1200 one time check payment and then more importantly the $600 a month unemployment insurance benefit, which is an extra on top of the existing unemployment insurance that existed in the state. So it's basically just giving people money to get through the pandemic in which everything is more or less stopped, right? Um, and that original bill ran out. It was like a basically a it had a time limit on it um, and it all ran out. Um, and so they need to do a new one because the economy has we're still in the coronavirus pandemic. The, the economy has like ticked up a little bit um, as a result, mostly of the first stimulus. But um, it, it'll it's going to collapse again as soon as, you know, people can afford to buy basic things and start getting evicted and things like that. Before you go on, um, Nando, I want to explain to people, and, you know, we're not economists over here, but it, it like, you know, for a very long time, the people who work at Treasury, the people who work in the at the Fed and all of that stuff, like these people had a very sort of ideological stringency that said you don't just put money in the economy yeah. right even in the worst of times you just don't do that that disincentivizes people to work and do this and do that but what we saw with that $600 plus unemployment is that not only did it help people with money, it's like all these economies of things that depend on people to spend are able to stay afloat now yeah. because people have money to yeah. spend on things and actually keep it moving. When, when J Jeff Bezos, and we use him as a whipping boy every time, but when he makes... 10 billion in six months he's not putting it back into no, the economy can't spend that. nobody's getting that money it's just staying in his accounts yeah like this is like <laughs> that <laughs> instead of the Whereas idea if we Wazni need to Lombre do the and Nando Vila get a thousand bucks we're spending we're that putting shit. that on the streets yeah if, yeah I'm immediately behind, like, jeans and like in, Im yeah immediately getting yeah. put on jeans haircuts all yeah. of these things, your cable bill, your, your, whatever you want to call it, the supermarket, Food, all yeah, of it. exactly, yeah. All of it is happening because we have this money, right? And instead of thinking to ourselves, okay, 
That money that's going to this dude that already has more money than God, that's never going to do anything for anybody. How do we sort of lower that ledger and give the people and and put the money in places where it's actually going to work? How do we do that? No, no. It's like, let's just keep getting Bezos more rich. This used to be non-controversial, like basically between the 1930s and the 1970s, this was just conventional wisdom and the government more or less did that (laughs) and they kind of more or less managed the economy pretty good. There was no financial crises in in that 40-year span. Starting in the late 70s and early 80s, there was this revolution called the supply side economics revolution. You've probably heard about it as trickle down, you know, Reaganomics. I don't know. There's a bunch of different words for it, um, which then became kind of the hegemonic uh, economic view, um, basically from 1980 through today. Um, And if you look at the financial crises that have been since then, there's one basically every 10 years. There was one in the early 80s. There was one in the late 80s. There was one in the late 90s. There was one in 2008. Basically, every 10 years, you have a big economic meltdown because just just not a good way to manage the economy. So yeah. Um, so so the, the, everyone kind of understands, even like the most rapacious business leaders understand that there needs to be some sort of stimulus in the economy. If not, there's going to be an economic downturn and, and people are going to suffer and businesses are going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer because there just isn't enough economic activity because of the pandemic. So what ended up happening is that Trump basically pulled out of the negotiations. He was like, no, we're not going to do it. We're just not going to do it. Obviously, the Democrats want to give more money. The Republicans want to give less money. My secret theory is that the Republicans actually don't want to give any money. Like that they they, um, they got all they wanted in the first uh, coronavirus bill, which we talked about a lot on this show. We and, talked and, a lot about And giving Biden. people money is just going to get them to think that this is normal and right. this is something that the government yeah. should actually be doing, which is anathema they to everything the Republicans yeah. believe in. No, and no, no, plus, no, no, no. And in exchange for that $1,200 that we got and, uh, and the $600 in unemployment insurance, what the Republicans got in exchange for that was basically $6 trillion for corporations, right? Literally like just $6 trillion. Like that and again, exchange. And how people need to understand this, like, nobody's getting a raise, getting hired, getting better bennies, better... Like, that money is not going to regular people. It's just not. Like, the concept that our overlords get all of these tax breaks and all of these windfalls and they just make it rain on us like strippers at a strip club. That That never happens. It never has. It never will. And you you start, because this is the thing, sort of like respected economists, you know, would basically like, the idea of Keynesian economics, which is the idea that the government has to play a role in all of this shit, right? Like they have to have cash infusions for things that, you know, businesses, capitalists, whoever you want, can't foresee. They can't see the future. They can't, like, they can't be all, the market isn't all knowing and all seeing. There's just shit that just can't be solved by that. The government needs to step in. That was like seen as some type of radical ridiculous idea by some of the most respected people in the positions um, to make those decisions, right? Um, And now you're starting to hear like, nah, like, you know, again, like when the airlines and the banks are getting two trillion off the bat, you can't hold that worldview. Yeah. You cannot hold the worldview that the government's cash infusions do not help anything. Like yeah. it's impossible to hold that worldview. But now they're getting their cake and eating it too. It's like, no, but that only works for us. 
I, I honestly think that the the since 2008, since the 2008 financial crisis and the massive bailout for the banks, there's been a new ideology, which is just more money for the rich and less money for the poor. Like from from like Reaganomics in the 19 in the early 1980s through the 1990s and early 2000s, I think it was really ideological, and there's like a lot of true believers that really thought like that this kind of nonsense actually worked, even though it didn't. I think that that all came crashing down in 2008, and now it's just purely nihilistic, like. Let's just loot the safe before the building burns down. Like, let's just hand more and more cash to the rich and fuck the poor. I mean, it's just, it's straight up, it's as naked as that. Um, so, and I think that that's, that's basically what the Republicans plan on doing is, I think that Mitch McConnell has basically looked at the polls, saw that Biden is up 16 points in the latest poll, that Trump is probably going to lose, you know? So what they can't do is help the economy now because it'll it'll help a Joe Biden presidency. What they want to do is starve the economy to destroy a Biden presidency. And he's making probably the correct assertion that Biden isn't going to fight him that hard on any of this stuff. You know, like that that the Democratic Party is weak, that they're not going to that they're not going to challenge him that that. You know, Whoa, and, at, in, with the same and, level of firepower that he's willing to go with, you know. So and and this is such an easy argument to make. Yeah, they got their welfare check. And the crazy thing, Nando, is that this would be such an easy sell to the American public, mm-hmm. right? Um, Wall Street, the corporate class has gotten their freaking boondoggle. They've been taken care of. We've watched. The job numbers haven't gotten better. People are still falling for unemployment at record rates. Um, And so they're good. Their stock prices are still good. They're still holding their board seats. They still have three summer homes. They're good. They're good. Now, why don't we do the same thing for people who aren't that? The freaking 99% of the country. Why don't we just do the same thing for them to get through this? This is such an easy case to make again if maybe if they hadn't done it for the corporate class already you could say oh you know it's hard to sell government stimulus people love to say oh it's welfare for niggers and mexicans and (laughs) blah 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 like they can paint it that way but you can't paint it that way when the same exact stimulus has already been given to the market and the corporate class yeah you know, it's always the that's always the frustration with the Democrats is that they're fighting the debates of 20 years ago. They're not debating the current moment, and you know they they still think they're they're so so captured by the conventional wisdom from the time where they got their asses kicked by Reagan. You know, essentially, and they decided like, <laughs> okay, we're just going to become Reagan and you know be nice to gay people. Um, essentially, was like the their trade off. Um, yeah, they're still fighting those fights. They 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 never they never do a proper, like what you said, just like, let's go. This is what it is. Like, fight for it. You know, make the case directly to the people, you know, like rally support, build, you know, the ideological infrastructure behind it, you know, all that stuff. Like, they don't do any of that stuff. And, you know, that's that's why we're kind of in the mess we're in, because one side kind of understands um, how the power works and keeps on dragging us further and further to the right. And the other side just keeps on chasing it further and further to the right, but always losing in, in the meantime. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and another thing, Nando is I think what you see with McConnell and them is that they have an understanding that Biden and his cohorts, and we say, we sound like a broken record on here. They are so knee deep 
or in bed or whatever fucking metaphor you want to use with the corporate class. Like Joe Biden is not going to go on TV, go on Meet the Press, go on MSNBC, go on CNN, go on every single cable show. Be, do Take an op-ed out in the New York Times and say they got theirs already. He will never point the finger at them no. ever. He will never single them out. No. He will never do that. And so McConnell and them is like, yo, this guy's fighting with one arm behind his back. We're going to fuck him yeah. up. That's, and that's, and that's what you see happening. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's, that's exact. That's exactly what, what the, the, the dynamic is. So, yeah. And so there you have it, folks. Just keep an eye out on Stimulus Talk. Of course, again, we want to thank Anna Kasparian, basically our first ever guest on the World Coast, yeah. for coming on and breaking down that conflict between the three countries out in the Middle East. Um, and of course, yeah, make sure you're subscribed to Woke Bros. I mean, w- subscribe to the Bomb Feed, Nando's Let's Pod It Out, the Entourage Recap Pod. Make sure you become a Patreon of Count the Dings, patreon.com backslash Count the Dings. That's how we're able to provide all of this wonderful content for you guys. Happy birthday to my brother, Rob Lopez, yeah. man. I love you. I appreciate all that you do around here, my brother. I hope you enjoy your birthday. Um, and we will see you guys next week. We out of here.